14. Uh, I'll be reading the first three verses if you can give it to me on the slides because I do, do not have it in front of me. Hear the word of God. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Who would you, would you have no fear? Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father God, we ask that you would be present in the proclamation of your word this morning. We pray that you would speak to us and teach us and uh, make us into the kind of people you'd have us be. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So three people have stood up here and um, thanked God for the weather, which I think is a little much because it's... It's miserable out there. I'm very, I'm very impressed by the people who showed up this morning on this dark, gloomy first day of, is this saving, daylight savings time or are we on normal time now? Which one is it? Okay, so thank you for being here. Uh, it was hard getting up this morning. It was like, it was grim and dim out there. So they say that sex and religion and politics are the three Topics you can't discuss in polite company, so you will be relieved to hear that I will not be discussing sex this morning. But I do need to talk about religion and politics. And I need to talk about the church and the state, because that's where our reading in Romans chapter 13 leads us this morning. Now I've said it a number of times, and I'll keep saying it until I see evidence to the contrary... Namely, that most people's political convictions are more deeply held than their religious convictions. I find that the average Republican Christian is happier to drink a beer with a Republican Hindu than with someone wearing an I am with her t-shirt. And I find that the average Democrat Christian is happier to sit down to brunch with a Democrat Muslim than with someone wearing a bright red Make America Great Again hat. I find that most people choose their church based on their politics rather than their politics based on their church. Whether we realize it or not, our politics embody our deepest and most basic ideas. Ideas about justice and fairness. Ideas about human nature and the meaning of life, ideas about how economies work and how peace is secured, ideas about the very meaning and purpose of government itself. And because these ideas are so deep and so basic to each of us, we often are unaware of them. We think that these ideas are simply common sense or that they're perfectly self-evident and Because these ideas are so basic, we often have a hard time talking with people who disagree with us about these ideas. Our conversation today won't touch on any 
of the issues that we usually think of as liberal or conservative, as left or right. Believe it or not, I want to talk about something that is actually deeper or more fundamental than the liberal-conservative divide which characterizes American politics. Believe it or not, what I say today might manage to ruffle the feathers of both left and right, Democrat and Republican. So here we go. Let me begin our discussion with three quotations. First, a quotation from the 1641 Westminster Confession of Faith. For the past, I don't know, 350 years, the Westminster Confession has been the doctrinal standard amongst Presbyterians. It is the standard in the EPC. We read, God, the supreme Lord and King of all the world, has ordained civil magistrates, that means governments, to be under him over the people for his glory and the public good. And to this end, he has armed them with the power of the sword for the defense and encouragement of them that are good and for the punishment of evildoers. Second, a quote from Archibald Alexander Hodges, 1869, commentary on the Westminster Confession. Hodge was a professor of systematic theology at Princeton Seminary, back when Princeton was a bulwark of orthodoxy. Hodge writes... The church and the state are both divine institutions, having different objects and spheres of action, different governments and officers, and hence while owing mutual good offices are independent of each other. And third, a quote from R.C. Sproul's 2009 commentary on Romans. Sproul is the founder of Ligonier Ministries and one of the most influential proponents of Reformed theology uh, in, in this century, he writes, both church and state are established by God. The church dispenses the elements of special grace, that which has to do with our salvation. Civil governments attend to the common good of the human race, not only for Christians, but for all people. So three quotations from three different centuries spanning nearly 400 years, all representing the view that the state, as much as the church, has been created, established, ordained, and legitimized by God himself. For Americans, this idea that government is established by God and derives its legitimacy from God might be a little hard to swallow. In 1776, the Declaration of Independence, penned by the deist Thomas Jefferson, gave voice to a political theory first articulated by two English philosophers, John Locke and David Hume. Jefferson writes in the Declaration, Governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. That was a new idea at the time. In 1948... Under the guiding hand of the Americans, the United Nations wrote the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which says pretty much the same thing as the Declaration of Independence. The will of the people shall be the basis of the authority of government. In other words, a government is legitimate if and only if the people who are governed by it say that it's legitimate. A legitimate government is one created, established, and ordained by those who are governed. This is a very deeply held American idea. We hold it so deeply, in fact, that we hardly ever expose it to critical scrutiny. 
Now you can stretch this idea just a little bit. And you get to the point where you say, a government is legitimate if and only if I, as one of the governed, say it's legitimate. It's that kind of small stretch that has led some people during the current administration and the past administration to say things like, he's not my president. Which is just another way of saying, I don't like the guy, so I will deny his legitimacy and authority. In Obama's time, it was the birthers who tried to undermine the authority and the legitimacy of the presidency by suggesting that Obama had not been born as an American citizen and therefore his election was invalid. In Trump's time, it is the Mueller investigation which seeks to undermine the authority and legitimacy of the Trump presidency by suggesting that Russian propaganda influenced people and therefore Trump's election was invalid. In both cases, it's the same fundamental principle at work. This deeply held presupposition that a government is legitimate if and only if I approve of it which is a very small step from the idea that the authority of government is derived from the consent of the governed. Now, I'm sure that we all admire the American Declaration of Independence and the UN's Declaration, Universal Declaration of Human Rights, but how do they square with what the Bible teaches? Paul writes, there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Peter says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or to governors sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good, for this is the will of God. In a very familiar saying from Jesus, we see the parallel but separate realms of the church and state mentioned. Jesus says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar and the things to God that are things, and to God the things that are God's. What we see in scripture is that governments are established by God and receive their legitimacy and authority from God, not from man. Now I'm going to pause for a minute while you take that in. Because I realize that that sounds crazy and that might sound un-American to you. What we see in scripture is that governments are established and receive their legitimacy and authority from God, not from man. When you hear a statement like that, maybe you think to yourself, well, what about evil governments? Surely God doesn't establish and legitimize evil governments, does he? When you hear a statement like that, maybe you think to yourself, isn't that just an excuse for the status quo? Doesn't that just protect people who abuse their power? I think what scripture teaches, and it teaches this pretty clearly, it's not really an ambiguous statement, and it teaches it in more than one place, What scripture teaches and what our political philosophy of this moment teaches simply are different. And we need to recognize that difference. And I realize, of course, that plenty of people will choose to follow Locke and Hume and Jefferson rather than Peter, Paul, and Jesus on these questions. As I've already said, 
for most of us, our political convictions are deeper than our religious convictions. My job this morning isn't to debate whether Paul's letter to the Romans or Peter's first epistle are more Holy Ghost inspired than the Declaration of Independence. And by the way, the Mormons, uh, the Mormons believe that the U.S. Constitution was divinely inspired and it's actually a kind of scripture. My job this morning isn't to debate whether Paul was more inspired by the Holy Spirit than Thomas Jefferson. My job this morning, rather, is to help us open our minds a little bit to entertain the idea that maybe the Bible is right. That maybe governments are divine creations and are not simply human institutions. That maybe governments do derive their authority from God and not from man, regardless of what the Declaration might say. And I think if we can open our minds a little bit to that possibility, and I realize that it's very strange, then there might be some interesting changes in how we go about living in relationship with our government. So let me first begin by reminding you of the government that Paul lived under. When Paul wrote this letter to the Romans, Paul was a citizen of Rome, Nero was the emperor of the empire at that time, if you think the election of Obama or Trump was illegitimate, then let me remind you of how Nero came to be the most powerful man on earth. Nero's mother married Emperor Claudius, and Nero had already been born, and then Nero's mother married Emperor Claudius, and and then uh, Claudius was murdered. Nero's mother was implicated in the murder. And then Nero becomes the emperor. And then Nero murders his stepbrother, the the legitimate son of Emperor Claudius, for fear that he might take the throne. And then later, Nero actually murders his own mother and his wife to maintain his grip on political power. That's how Nero became the most powerful man on earth. Now, we remember Nero as the emperor who played his violin while Rome burned. Nero blamed that fire. He probably said it himself. He blamed it on the Christians. And as a punishment, Nero had many of the Christians burned alive. He would hoist them up on poles on street corners and light them on fire. And apparently, uh, a human body can burn a very long time. And he did this to illuminate the city. Nero's rise to power violated every norm of human and political decency. Nero's reign as emperor, which lasted 14 years, was marked by tyranny and extravagance. Even the Romans didn't like him. According to the Roman historian Cassius Dio, the people of Rome celebrated when Nero died. And perhaps most important for us as Christians... When Paul was beheaded in Rome, it was Nero who gave the order. It's about this man, Nero, that Paul is able to write, There is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Which is shocking, at least from the American point of view. How can Paul say that the government of the Roman Empire... A government which invaded and occupied his country. A government which would later destroy the temple in Jerusalem. A government of pagans in which the head of the government was worshipped as a god. How can Paul say that the government of the Roman Empire was instituted by God? 
The answer to that question rests ultimately on the doctrine of God's sovereignty. As biblical Christians, we believe God is sovereign, that he is the king of all creation, and that what he says goes. Now, we don't always know why he does what he does, but we believe that God's will is never thwarted in this universe, that God always accomplishes what he intends, that nothing happens in this world without God's cooperating cooperating will. Listen to what the Bible says. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. Psalm 135, 6. Many are the plans of the mind of man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Proverbs 19, 21. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it whichever way he wills. Proverbs 21, 1. Now, of course, things happen in the world that we don't like. But it's absurd to deny that God is sovereign just because he ordains or permits things that we don't like. As I've already said, we don't always know why God does what he does, but we do affirm that God is in control, partly because the Bible says he's in control. And partly because if God were not in control, he would not be God. He'd be, I don't know, a demigod, a superhero, but he wouldn't be God. So the doctrine that all governments, even the bad ones, are established and ordained by God rests upon the fundamental doctrine of God's sovereignty. From that doctrine, we turn our attention to God's grace. Grace is a gift. Grace is what we receive from God without having paid for it. And we distinguish common grace from special grace. Common graces are those numberless good things that God does for everyone. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Your Father who is in heaven makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. The warming sun and the nourishing rain are common graces given to all humanity. Special graces are those good things that God gives to the redeemed to those who will spend all of eternity with him in the new Jerusalem. Paul writes, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's a gift from God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Faith and salvation are special graces. Unlike the sun and the rain, not everyone has faith. And not everyone is saved. Faith and salvation are special graces. So God dispenses, as he wills, both common graces and special graces. And as it turns out, governments are instituted and established by God as part of his common grace. While the church is instituted and established by God as a means of his special grace. As we earlier read from R.C. Sproul, the church dispenses the elements of special grace, that which has to do with our salvation, Civil governments attend to the common good of the human race, not only for Christians, but for all people. Writing about common grace, the Reformed scholar Louis Burkhoff says, Common grace curbs the destructive power of sin, maintains a measure of the moral order in the universe, thus making an orderly life possible. 
distributes the varying degrees, uh, in, in varying degrees, gifts and talents amongst people, promotes the development of science and art, and showers untold blessings upon the children of men. Here in the United States, we are free spirits and Sometimes we have this romantic idea that everything would be just honky-dory if there were no government. But if there were no government, there would be just chaos. No restraint of evil, open warfare between man and man. If there is no civil law, then all that's left is the law of the jungle. Even bad governments are better than no governments. We get a little hint of that when governments do break down as they do occasionally during times of war, during natural disasters. And the human response to the lack of civil restraint is looting and murder and general mayhem. I mean, if there were no police, what would you do that you could get away with? Now, maybe you are naturally saintly and wouldn't do anything but pick up litter and feed the hungry. But there are lots of people who would be happy to take advantage of a lapse in civil order to steal and rape and murder. So I think it makes sense for us to view the state, the magistrate, the government, not as a human creation, not as a product of human ingenuity and will, but as a gift of God, common grace, established for the good of all people, not just the Christians. And we should think of the church not as a human creation, but not as a product of human will and ingenuity, but as a gift of God's special grace, established for the good of God's called people. So what about corruption? Governments are corrupt. Some governments are just downright evil. How could God be responsible for creating, instituting, and establishing governments If they're less than perfect, God, after all, is perfect. Why shouldn't the things that he created, instituted, and established also be perfect? Well, let me answer that question by asking you the equivalent question. And then I think you'll be able to deduce the answer. People are corrupt. Some people are downright evil. One might ask, how could God be responsible for creating corrupt and evil people? God, after all, is perfect. Why shouldn't the things that he makes also be perfect? Do you see how the two questions are related? The question about God creating government and God creating people. Or we might ask the parallel question about our bodies. Our bodies are subject to disease, decay, and corruption. How could our bodies be a gift from God if they're subject to aches and pains? If you're going to ask, how could the government of Donald Trump be established and instituted by God since Donald Trump is so evil? Or if you're going to ask, how could the government of Barack Obama have been established and instituted by God since Obama was so evil? Logically, you would also have to ask, how could my life have been created by God? How could the life of my neighbor and my family been created by God since we are so evil? So what are we to do? Here's the reality. We live in a fallen world. And God works in an incarnational way in this fallen world. God uses the stuff of this fallen world to produce the good that he's after. The Bible tells us that God works all things 
For the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. That's the good things and the bad things. God works in bad things and God works in good things. And all of it together produces the grand and universal and cosmic good that God is after. You and I and Donald Trump and Barack Obama are just tiny little players in a much larger drama that's unfolding at the grandest scale. And God is sovereign over that entire drama. And God knows what the last act of that drama will look like. So what should we do? And particularly, how should we behave in connection with our governments? Let me give you a few principles and let's see if we don't catch on to how these all hang together. If you believe... That all that you have and all that you are has come from God. Then you should also believe that your life and your body is a gift from God. And that your family is a gift from God. And that your neighbors are a gift from God. And that your church is a gift from God. And that your government's a gift from God. Believe that even As at the same time you recognize that you're not sinless and that your body is not incorruptible. Believe that even while you recognize that the people in your life are not 100% good. Believe that even while you recognize that the church is full of sinners and has all kinds of flaws. Believe that even when you recognize that those who make and enforce the laws are not spotless or selfless or sanctified. First... Believe that all that you have and all that you are has come from God. And having believed that fundamental biblical truth, then what we should do with our own bodies in light of the fact that they are gifts from God, gifts given in a fallen world, gifts that are not without corruption, what we should do in this case is first give thanks to God for them. Thank you, God, that I was able to get out of bed this morning, that I have a body, that I have a body that allows me to experience your creation and your will and your grace. And after we thank God for our bodies, then we should take care of them. We should feed them. We should take them for a walk and go to the gym with them. And when our bodies are feeling out of sorts, we should take them to the doctor and we should also pray for them. That's how we should treat our bodies, which are corrupted, corruptible gifts from God. Well, how about we do the same with our government? How about we begin by giving thanks to God for our government? Thank you, God, for our magistrates and our police and for our legislators and for our presidents who work to ensure the smooth operation of our daily lives. Thank you, God, for our government, which allows us to meet here this morning. And after we give thanks to God for our government, how about we actively take care of it? How about we feed it with our taxes and our civic engagement? How about we participate in its functions by voting and serving and volunteering? And when our government is feeling out of sorts, how about we doctor it with civil public discourse and engagement in existing political processes? How about we pray to God for the health of our government? Scripture tells us something that might be shocking, that there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. That doesn't mean it's flawless. Any more than our bodies are flawless. 
or our families are flawless. But it is a gift from God instituted by God. And here's what the Apostle Peter tells us that we need to do. Live as servants of God. Honor everybody. Love the brotherhood, that means the church. Fear God and honor the emperor. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father God, we do thank you for the goodness uh, that we receive from your hand, the goodness of this life and the goodness of of your presence in our lives. Lord, I, I do pray that we would um, be able to take a look at our circumstances and our world and our lives and our families and our church and our government. Lord, I pray that we would be able to look at all of these things and see your hand in them, that we would receive them from you as gifts, as part of your grace, your common grace in some cases, your special grace in others. And Lord, teach us how to live with these gifts which come from you and are intended for our good, but which come in a fallen world. Teach us how to love and to care for things which are broken and not perfect. Teach us how to honor those who were fallen and not perfect. Lord, I pray that our attitudes and our actions and our words might reflect our submission to your authority as the king of all. And we do pray that your kingdom would come and that your will would be done here on earth as it is in heaven. All honor and glory belong to you alone. Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen.